Good morning. How are you? You good? Okay. All right. Well, if you're a guest with us today, my name's Greg, one of the pastors here. I'd also like to say hello to anybody that's joining us, or all the people, I should say. It's usually a lot. People that are joining us online. And so as we get rolling today, this is number two in a new series, week number two in a new series that we're calling Becoming Salt and Light, Making a Difference in Your World. And I wanted to give you some context. We've been really, really intentional about what our sermon series is on Sundays. It started back in the fall. We did a study of Ruth, and then we were in the Sermon on the Mount looking at the Beatitudes for several weeks. And then we took a break from that and uh, talked about Advent uh, for four weeks. And then as we began the new year, we, we did a series, taught a series on back to basics. And what I want to say to you is this series here today, this time that leads up to Palm Sunday, is a continuation really of that series, Back to Basics. And so we're talking about personal evangelism. We're talking about, last week I introduced the word oikos, and we'll look at that again today. Oikos is the, the Greek word that means household, and it means more the inhabitants of a household, and used 120 times uh, throughout the New Testament. And the idea is that all of us have a sphere of relationships. And the idea with this series is beginning to notice who God has placed in our lives. And the idea, again, is that most of us have between 8 and 15 relationships with people in our oikos, our sphere of relationships, that are either unchurched or dechurched. And if you haven't heard that word, dechurched are people that have had a difficult time in church with church, and so dechurched people. Then maybe you've heard the word nuns, too, N-O-N-E-S, and that's people that mark that they, they have no real religious affiliation at all, and that's a growing number of our population. And so as we move into this series today and, and talk about things like personal evangelism, what we're doing is we're asking this question. Uh, I think it's the next one, next slide up there that says, what does the New Testament say about God's church, how God's church is to impact culture? We're asking that question. I think it's a really good question, and so that's, that's where we are. The big picture overview of this is I want to really, really, really clearly state that this is not a program that we're trying to grow our church with. This, that's not what we're doing here. I think church growth is the fruit of what a lot of what we'll be talking about today. It's not the goal. It's, it's the fruit. And so this is not a program. We think this is really basic Christianity. And I'll unpack that a little bit more. Some of it will be reviewed from last week, and then we'll cover some new ground as well. But I just wanted to be clear about that. Last week, we considered two priorities that are really, really foundational and clearly identified in the New Testament. One is what we'd call the Great Commandment. And maybe we could take a look at that again. We looked at it last week. But this is Matthew 22, 37 to 42. And it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What's happening here is this really genius moment where Jesus is summing up the whole Old Testament into two commandments. And it's love God 
and love people. And in our church at this time, at this moment, what we're saying is that the goal of the Christian faith, the, the thing that we want for you more than anything else, is that you would love God more and more and more. You remember that moment when, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that, that moment where your heart was awakened to the gospel, and you saw something beautiful, and, and you thought, me? How, how could God love me like that? And so something, our heart is awakened, and we want that to continue. There's that initial awakening, and we want it to keep going and going and going. I'm reminded of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And he's praying that for a church. And so what he's saying is our, the eyes of our heart are continually awakened. And so we're saying that, that the, the great commandment is the goal of the church. It's the goal of the church. It's, it's what we want for you. I want it for me. Love God and love people. So it all starts there. And then the fruit is the Great Commission. If we could look at that passage too, it's, it's called the Great Commit Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these, these new disciples to obey the commandments I have given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And we just talked about commandments, right? He gave us two commandments. And so this is what Jesus is telling them to do. Teach them to love God. Teach them to love people. Now, there's more to, to it than that, but that is the basis. That's where we start. And some of us in this room grew up in a context where we thought the Great Commission was the goal of the church. Get them saved, get them saved, get them saved, get them saved. And that's important, but we want to go back to the root. The heart of the thing is the great commandment. Love God, love people. And then out of that, that love begins to fuel our going and making disciples. That's what we want is, is love to fuel our connections, our conversations with the people that I would say God has sovereignly placed in your life. And so that's some of the context that we're talking about here. What does all this mean? Uh, part of this means that is that we are all missionaries. You and I, are, we're all missionaries. And I shared this last week. I'll share it again just so that we have it. We serve a missionary God. What does that mean? Well, the Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sends you. So we serve a missionary God. All of us are called to be missionaries. And, and what we're going to talk about today is a little bit is, is, is how to do that well. And there's some mistakes that have been made, and we need to kind of go back and understand that and talk about this new way forward. So if we were to look at basic biblical Christianity, this is what we'd see. This is the Christian life, the bare bones of the Christian life. We start with loving God. That's the, the goal, always the goal. We love people. And out of that love, we go. To go is to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond yourself. It's so easy in this world, our culture today, to just be totally focused inward. Uh, the the, the um, coronavirus, you know, keeps us apart. It even, makes it even worse, you know, of not being able to connect. Uh, binge watching and Netflix, all those things that keep us separated. But we're to go, we're to look beyond ourselves and see who else God has placed in our lives that we can begin to identify and pray for and love and care about and listen to and, and at the appropriate moment share Christ and make disciples. 
Uh, we're all called to do that. It's not just the staff. It's not just the elders. It's all of us are called to do that. If you're a parent, you understand that. We're called to disciple our children before they become Christians, right? That's what we do. And grandparents, uh, we try to do that, but we'd rather spoil them and that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, that's the calling that we have. And I want to say that. I might say it later, but I might forget. Uh, you can disciple people before they're believers, just like we do with our kids. So there's that too. So uh, last week I introduced that term oikos. And if we could have the next slide. This is, our, this is the thought again, oikos, 120 times, household, uh, the inhabitants, not the structure. And then again, we have a, uh, statistically we have between 8 and 15 people in our current relational sphere that we come in contact with on a regular basis, the neighbors and relatives and uh, club members and work and school and friends, etc. And last week I shared how one of the new members in my Oikos is our mailman. I've gotten to know him a little bit and he's delivered some packages. We've had some conversations. He's a talkative guy. And then I ran into him at CVS and we had another conversation. I said, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're my mailman. And uh, just try to appreciate him. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, he, he's, he's new to my perception and so I'm, 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 I'm asking God, how can I continue to engage with him and get to know him and listen to him? He's, you know, he's got to come and go, but he's a pretty talkative guy, so it's helpful in that as well. But that's the idea. What we're inviting you to do is make a list of these people in your life to be focused and, and sit down and write out a list and then choose, you know, five to ten or whatever. And just um, last week we gave out a card, and if you took that card and filled it out, that's that's cool. Uh, but I gave Chris the wrong card to print up. And so this is the real card. Uh, and then on the back, there's an opportunity to just write some names down. And so what we're saying is take some time. You might want to do this with your spouse. You, if you've got kids that are old enough to engage, do it with them. And say, you know, of, of your friends and, and parents of your friends, you know, who can we be praying for? And to do this as a family or do it as a couple and over dinner, maybe just pull this out or you put this on the refrigerator, you put it on the bathroom mirror, you put it in your car so that when you're, when you're, when you're moving, you're reminded and that's where we start. We just begin to pray for people and then begin to, um, one of the things I mentioned last week is that when you have an opportunity uh, to engage with one of these folks that you've written down, the, the best thing that we can do to start things off, be fully present in that conversation. If it's at the water cooler at your, at your kid's um, soccer game match, then you, you just, in that moment, you're just fully present. You, listen, you don't look over their shoulder, you don't look around, you don't look at your watch, your phone, but you're just, it, it might be just a few moments, but you're just f fully present. That, that begins to help us uh, develop a relationship, let them know that we actually care about who they are and, uh, and uh, th that you'd like to be a, a friend to them. A loving friend. So we're asking you to consider this kind of stuff, and at some point, God will open the door for you to be able to share the gospel. So we want to be helpful with that too, and we we don't want the idea to just well when you just invite them to church, invite them to church. That's that's fine. I think that's great. But what we want, what our preference is, is for you to be able to share the gospel yourself. We don't want you to depend on us as a staff or in a sermon or something like that, that you can do that. So another thing that we've made available to you today is this little insert size. It's a, a, a tool to help you learn how to write down your 
testimony, and I would like to invite you to do that too. So there's really three questions and then some sub-questions, and the three main questions are, what was your life like before you were a follower of Jesus? And then how did you become a follower of Jesus? And then what is your, how is your life different now? Those are the three big questions. So if you take one of these, and here's my suggestion for you. My suggestion is take this and, and journal it. And it, it, you, you might end up with five or 10 or 20 or 30 pages as you just start writing and begin to reflect on the mercy and the love and, and the grace of God inviting you into this thing called Christianity, inviting this, you into this thing, this relationship with God. Jesus left the comfort of heaven, uh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death so that you and I could have access to heaven. And as we reflect on the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of that, write it down and journal it, and it, it might be several pages. And then once you have that and reflect and worshiped and, and showed gratitude to God, then begin to, to put it down in, into what, what I said on here, a concise, chronological, and compelling uh, testimony. That idea that when you do get to share Christ and it comes to that, that moment that, that you've got it down to about 90 seconds that you can share, you know, what your life was like, how you came to Christ, what your life is like now, that you have something uh, that, that you can pass on to people so that you don't take a half an hour and they're looking over your shoulder uh, and that kind of thing too. So that's, we just want to help you get there and we'll talk more about, about how to lead someone to Christ and, and that kind of thing as we move ahead. So with all that said, I'd like to look at our text for this morning. I'd like to read First uh, Peter chapter 3, Verses 15 and 16, it's, it's on page 1025 there in the Bibles that are close by to you. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give, give you, make that a gift to you. But what I'm going to ask you to do, it's a short little passage. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask you to read it with me. And so we'll just say it out together. And uh, it's, it's, uh, this is something that we've been doing. A part of inviting you to stand is the idea of respecting and honoring the Word of God. And so part of it is, is to... Um, Get the blood flowing, too. There's that, too. So it's 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It's different, a different version or different translation than the, than the Bibles that are close by to you. Uh, but I like this one, and so I'm going with it. So let's, let's read it together. Ready? Begin. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Let me pray. Kind Father, you be the teacher today. We're grateful for your presence amongst us. Uh, we lift up this coronavirus and how it's affecting the whole world. We ask for your healing touch and your healing power. Uh, we ask for wisdom and discernment moving forward. Thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So a lot of us have heard that verse before, but sometimes, well, oftentimes when we hear that verse, uh, it, it doesn't come with the beginning of, of uh, verse 16, yet with gentleness and, and reverence. Uh, so there's that part too. And so I've titled this uh, sermon, Be Becoming People of Redemptive Influence. And, and this, the passage is pretty straightforward. Uh, the, the larger context of this is that, that Peter is writing to kind of uh, believers that are scattered throughout the known world at that time. There was a severe persecution in Jerusalem, and then uh, the Christians scattered out uh, amongst um, 
the, the known world. And Peter is writing to encourage these believers that have been scattered out to persevere through some pretty significant suffering and persecution. And so that's the larger context. So what I'd like to do, look at today, are four things. Try and address four things. Number one, what does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts? We want to touch on that. What is Christian hope? It's different than our cultural hope, the hope we get stuck in sometimes. And then here's this weird question. What is this post-Christian culture moment that we find ourselves in? Now, most of you have probably heard the phrase post-Christian or post-Christian culture. Some of you, it might be brand new for you. So we're just going to unpack that. What's this current moment that we're in right here and right now, and how does it affect our, the sharing of our faith? We want to talk about that, just a touch. And then what does it mean to make a defense with gentleness and reverence? That's an important question, too. And we, I just want to give you a few practical tips on that. Uh, so that's where we're headed. So we'll go back and look at those one at a time. First one that we'll look at, how do we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts? The word sanctify means to set apart. The idea of sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts is that we begin to regard Jesus as the holiest being in the universe. We set him apart as being holy. And you might find this interesting. Most of us have prayed the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray it together at the end of the service. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed, be thy name. Hallowed is the same Greek word as that word sanctified. And so when we say the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy, revered, worshipped be your name. And I probably told you the story. I grew up Catholic like many of you. And, and when I grew up, I, I can't remember if I told you this, but anyway, I thought it was hallowed be your name. I didn't know there was a word hallowed and so for years, I thought it was hollowed. And I always wondered, like, what does that mean? And then the other part, the Hail Mary, I didn't know the word hail either. So I thought it was Hell Mary. And I was like, you know, it was like Hell Mary. And I was like, well, what did she do? I thought, I thought we liked her. You know, that's how I kind of thought about it. So those are my, you know, a little bit about me. So I've come a long way. Or maybe some would say, you're not far enough. But there's all that too. So to sanctify, as we look at this text that we read today, we, we see an additional way to sanctify Christ. This, this passage tells us that we sanctify Christ when we are ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. That's another way to sanctify Christ, is that we are ready to give an offense. Uh, give a defense. We do the offense thing on our own, but there's that. And so I, I just want to point out something in, in relationship to this oikos evangelism that we're talking about. Notice that our passage says, to everyone who asks. To everyone who asks. Sometimes it's difficult to wait for people to ask. Or some of it, sometimes we feel a sense of urgency that we just got to share the gospel with them. But I would suggest in this current cultural moment that, we, that we're patient. Does, does that mean to, to wait, to always, no matter what, wait till they ask? No. Sometimes we're compelled to share the gospel. I, I, I ride, uh, take Lyft rides a lot. My son works at the um, corporate office of Lyft. 
and so you should give up Uber and do Lyft. Uh, there's that. Um, but I, I'm, in, I'm in there a lot, and I love having conversations. And I've had several Muslim drivers and been able to talk to them. Uh, sometimes I'll share Christ, and sometimes I'll just appreciate uh, who they are and that kind of thing. And, and so it's not saying here that you have to have to wait until somebody asks. It's just saying that let's be patient. Let's be patient. I'll talk about more of that in a minute. Uh, so uh, the second one is what is Christian hope? What is Christian hope? Our English word and concept of, of hope is generally distinguished from the idea of certainty. I think you could agree. And for, for us, hope is more of this emotional longing or desire. Like we could say, I, gee, I, I hope it doesn't snow anymore, you know, till summer. We could say, I hope the Patriots win one more Super Bowl with Brady. We, we can hope for those kinds of things, but, but, but we lack certainty. Christian hope is certain. And I, I put a, together a, a phrase that identifies, and sorry it's so long, but I think it's worth it. I tried to get it down. Uh, but this is Christian hope right here. God condescended to become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died in history. In history, it happened. Who was raised from the dead. That's really the key question, right? Was he or wasn't he? It was raised from the dead, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to restore perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect love to his people and to this earth. That is our hope. It, it has its roots in history, and that is Christian hope, uh, a, a certainty that we move towards. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know the name, some of you might be new to you, but he was uh, a pastor who was studying over here in the United States when World War II broke out as a German guy. He went back to Germany. He didn't have to. He chose to, to be with the German people during the war. He, he ended up being executed because he was part of a plan to uh, assassinate um, Hitler. And so he ended up dying or being executed right just a few months, maybe even a couple months before the end of the war. And he wrote a lot, uh, talked about discipleship and life together and that kind of thing. And he wrote a letter to his parents just before his execution. So he wrote it from his cell, and this is what he said. I'm about to experience the supreme festival on the road to everlasting freedom. It was actually part of a poem that he wrote to his parents. Uh, but do you think he had hope? I think he did too. I think he had hope. I think he knew where he was going. There was a, a confidence in his heart and his life, and that's, 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 our, that's part of our journey is to apprehend that hope so that we know who we are, we know who God is, and we know where we're going. That is Christian hope. It's a know, your knower comes alive in your life, and that's, that's part of where we're going. So number three, what is this post-Christian cultural moment that we find ourselves in? We live in this increasingly post-Christian context, and it, as I mentioned, it will affect how we engage in evangelism, just in relationships. Uh, what does that mean? And so when the Christian church was born in 33 AD, it was this small 
subversive, countercultural sect that existed at the margins of society, and not at the center. They were on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, and when Christianity was birthed, it really affected Jerusalem, but it had very little effect on the rest of the Roman Empire. And so 280 years later, and those, in those 280 years, Christianity just exploded. I think at the time of, I'll mention Constantine in a moment, Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official state religion in 313 AD. And I've heard statistics and different sociologists will try and put together statistics, but over half the Roman Empire, it's thought, had become Christians by the time that Constantine declared Christianity to be the state religion. And the historians wonder whether Constantine really had a conversion experience or not, or it was a political decision. Uh, historians uh, agree that his mother had this legit uh, Christian experience. Constantine, we're not sure. I guess we'll find out one of these days. But when, when, he be, when it became the state religion, then, then Christianity be, began moving rapidly into the center of what would become Western culture. And, and we see evidence of that as we drive around New England and see the, the, the churches on the greens, right? Uh, in, in, um, in the founding of our country on the, 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 the town square, the green, there would be the government offices, mayor, magistrate, whatever, and the church. And that's in Western Europe, same kind of thing, church on the green. And that's, that's an indication that Christianity for about 17, 1800 years moved to the center of our culture. And in the last 50 years or so, we've been pushed back out to the edge of culture. What happened? What happened? Some of it is really just normal, ebbing and flowing when the tide, the tide can go out and the tide can come back in. And you can look back on history and see these different revivals. We could talk a lot about that, how God, in the midst of kind of a flickering moment of Christianity, Christianity was supposed to go away in the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, uh, several different times. People, you know, said that it's the end of religion, it's the end of Christianity, and then God would move and, and, and bring it back stronger than it ever was. And so part of it is this, this normal ebbing and flowing. And then there's, there's a part of it that I think we need to own. We've shot ourselves in the foot many, many times. And what I want to say to you over the last 50 years, we've been pushed back to the margins. Uh, this is where we find ourselves now. How did we get here? We shot ourselves in the foot. In, in, in these historical events, because when you find yourself talking to people about Christ, what we find now is that the people don't have any kind of history of understanding the Bible. A lot of us, and we became Christians, being a Catholic. You know, when I uh, became uh, an active, intentional follower of Christ, I knew a lot of the Bible stories, and so the, the dots were connected for me pretty quickly. Uh, the people that we're talking to now have no background or experience. We're really starting from scratch in a lot of ways. And so the, the questions are, well, you know, if God is loving, why did this happen? Why did that happen? What's going on here? What's going on there? And so just to give you a few things that where I think we've shot ourselves in the foot, this, there's, there's, there's 10 times more than what I'm going to share with you. Um, and I'll tell you why I'm sharing this with you after I get through it. But you go back to the Inquisition and the Crusades they were awful and horrifying events. 
that we need to be able to tell people, yeah, that was awful. That was awful. Uh, we've had millennia. That means thousands of years of patriarchy. What's patriarchy? It's male domination. And it's happened in the culture, and it's happened in the church. And it's the antithesis of the gospel message. Jesus elevated the role of women in his ministry, and Paul specifically did too, and other New Testament writers did. What was it, 1973 or 1978 that the Equal Rights Amendment was passed and is yet to be ratified? Wow. That's unimaginable for me. But that's existed in culture. That's existed in the church. And I think at some point we need to own that. The way that Christians justified slavery and the subsequent Jim Crow laws in this country was abominable. It was awful. The way that the prosperity gospel has infiltrated into the Christian message. And to make it worse, it gets exported through missionaries into third world countries. and the more recent multiple failings of church leaders and even whole denominations that includes but is not limited to the church two movement. These are awful things. And it's not them, it's us. And when we get the opportunity to share with people in our sphere of relationships, our oikos, it's really helpful if we're willing to own some of that stuff. And you say, well, I didn't do that. That's not me. No, it's us. If you're part of the church, I've talked about this a few weeks ago. There's the invisible church. That's all church at all times, past, present, and future. Then there's a visible church, the people that are the church today. That becomes us. And it's so helpful when we are willing to own that. Yeah, that was, that was horrible. I'm so sorry. And be sincere about it. I'm so sorry that happened. And when you do that, when you're honest, when you're transparent in that way, it builds a bridge to people. And it helps them to listen to you, to us along the way. Studies indicate that unchurched people in our current cultural moment or context, they don't have a problem with God. They don't, they don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the church. And so for us to bridge that gap by owning what we can own and having continue to have those conversations is really helpful and beneficial. If I had to pick one verse out of the Bible that helps explain this journey back to the margins, it would be this verse in uh, Timothy. If I could have the next slide. 2 Timothy 2.5. This is, I think this is us. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. I think a lot of the church activity in the last many years has been us trying to do it on our own. One of the definitions um, that I've come across for post-Christian is a desire for the kingdom without the king. And, and the way that I've put something together after that's something that I read, the way that I put that together is as a church, 
that we have wanted the benefits of grace without investing in learning reverence and awe. We love grace. It's awesome. And as a church, we haven't invested in going deep with God and being dependent on Him, learning reverence, learning awe. It's become a convenience for us. We come to church to be inspired. Our goal is not to inspire you. Our goal is to worship Jesus. Sometimes that's inspiring. Sometimes it isn't. But that's the goal. But we've trained a culture of consumers at some level. And I don't want us to be consumers. I want us to be contenders for God, his presence, his power, his life. That's what I want for this church. That's what I want more of that for me in the days ahead. I've been reading a guy, his name is Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor and author. A book, uh, The Reappearing Church, good book if you're a reader. He's got another one that he wrote a few years ago called The Disappearing Church. He's a cultural commentator, and I've enjoyed his perspective. I get sucked into our, all our political drama, but I see a lot of what's going on here in America is going on around the world in lots of different places, and it's helped me to to see that God is probably up to something. But here's what Mark Sayers would say. When we cry out to God and repent of the ways that we have ignored him and pursued our human-driven plans for renewal in our own strength, when we take a posture of contending for his kingdom to come with power, then we begin to see that he moves. So it starts with humility. It starts with Repentance. I always go back to the Beatitudes. Acknowledge our spiritual poverty. Mourn over the condition of my heart, the condition of the world around me. Become a humble learner, and then I, I grow a hunger for God and for God's purpose. I, I always go back there. I'm a Beatitudes kind of guy. But the way forward for us in sharing with the people that we seem to see on a regular basis, here's my encouragement to you. Repentance. Humility kindness. Those things will build a bridge in conversation to the, with the people that God has placed in your lives. Repentance, I'm so sorry. Humility and kindness. Being fully present, loving people, learning how to serve people and honor people and wait until you have the opportunity or God gives you the opportunity to share your story. The good news about finding ourselves back out onto the margins of society, there's good news there. We were in the center. We got pushed back to the side. What's the good news? The good news is that the Bible was written to and was written for people on the margin. And so we have a way back. We have a way back to come. Okay, to, to wind this down, I'd like to give you six kind of quick thoughts about practical oikos evangelism in this current cultural context. Not going to take much time, but I, th I hope that it's easily uh, seen. So number one, consider the relational factor. Consider the relational factor. Let's begin to see evangelism or sharing our faith as a relational dance rather than a win-lose conquest. I'm a boomer. That was kind of a boomer thing. Notch on the Bible, get them saved, get them saved, get them saved. 
I think it's a different moment from that. See it again as a dance that you're in with these people, not a win-lose conquest. Don't press for decisions too quickly. Be patient. Keep the conversation going. And I would even say if somebody says, I want to get saved, I want to accept Jesus, I would even say, let's push back a little bit. Do you really understand? What you're, we're, we're so quick to pray with people if they want to accept Christ, right? Well, let's pray the prayer. Well, a lot of people have prayed the prayer and not found themselves in. So it's, it's like, do you realize what you're saying? You know, Christianity, it, you know, the grace of God, it's, it's free. To be a Christian is free. We get it right? But it'll cost you everything. Or I should say, and it will cost you everything. It's free and it costs you everything. Do you, when somebody wants to get converted or get saved, do you, do you understand what you're committing to? This is a big deal. Are you sure? Let's talk next week. That could happen. That kind of thing could happen. And so I'm, I, I, let's not be so quick to try and close the deal, get it done. That's what I'm saying. Uh, number two, consider the narrative factor. First of all, listen to their story. Everybody has a story. Everybody in this room has a story. Everybody online has a story. And the vast majority of us, probably 99% of us, we love to tell our story. We love it when somebody asks us, tell your story. We all have one. We all want to tell it. And the people in your sphere of relationships, when you ask them, sit down for coffee or lunch break in the room or the kids are playing on the playground and you're talking to another mom or dad or whatever, and you say, hey, tell me your story. What's, what's your life like? Where, where'd you come from and what's your life like? People, love, oh, they jump in and love to do that, right? That happens. So ask people to tell you their story. And then when you have listened well to them, we usually get a chance to tell our story. And then as the conversation or the relationship increases, Oikos evangelism culminates in sharing God's story. So it's about three stories, right? It's about their story, it's about your story, and then it's about God's story. That's kind of a natural progression, but I want to encourage you to start with, tell me your story. Listen well. Listen attentively, attentively for, uh, to that. So the gospel is best presented, I believe, in story form. Rather than just another set of facts or rules or principles or laws, we tend to go back to those kinds of things. And I would say that evangelism is, 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 is better heard in story form. The Bible itself has God speaking to us with prophets and poets and government officials and commoners and philosophers and priests, and they all tell the gospel story in a little different way. So pay attention to that. Pay attention to the people that you're talking to as well. And number three, consider the community factor. Uh, it's difficult to share the good news if you're the bad news, right? So there's that. Uh, and so some of you might have to have an intervention with one of your friends, get together with him or her and say, you know what you got to do? You got to take the Christian bumper sticker off your car because you're not a good enough driver to be promoting Christianity with your, your driving. I borrowed a car for a while when I was first here the first couple of months, and it had two I Love My Church stickers. That's the Community Covenant bumper stickers that we have. I had two on the back, and every once in a while I'd forget that they were there. 
I'm not a bad driver, but I can get a little intense. And, and you know what it's like around here, these two-lane roads, you get behind a school bus or someone going really, really slow. It's usually someone from Vermont that goes slow. And, and I get a little, you know the feeling, right? And, and sometimes I get a little intense about that, and I, I don't use gestures as much as I used to, uh, but I still struggle with things. It's because Lynn is not here as much as she should be. Uh, I, uh, I won't go into that. I, I've got to, we don't have time. One of these days. But it, if you're the bad news, don't try and talk about the good news. If you've got an anger problem, and you, every once in a while you blow up, whether it's work or at home or at the practice field or something like that, you've got to own that. And that's the idea behind this, this, this concept of consider the community factor. The idea is we're going to blow it. Right? We're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to lose our temper. We're going to say things we wish we hadn't. Uh, all kinds of things where we step outside the bonds of, of, of help, helpful and healthy relationships. Here's the deal. When you do that, own it. If you lose your temper at work, colleagues, whatever, go back. You know, I lost my temper. I'm so sorry. Or at home, husbands and wives need to do this. Uh, kids need to see you do that. Uh, uh, people at the, at the ballpark, they need, they need to see that too. And so that's, that's the community factor. When you blow it, and you will, we will, we blow it. It happens. Own it. And that'll help to continue to build relationships with people. Belonging can precede believing. That's another part of this community factor. That idea that at some level you're called to disciple your oikos, your, your sphere of relationships. And I don't want you to have to think of yourself as kind of the, the discipler or the evangelist of your oikos. You're the priest. You're the, you're the one that prays for and cares for and cares about and listens to these people in your life until God moves it forward into another way uh, of, of um, uh, evangelist. Uh, so be fully present. Love those people. Care for those people. Be willing to disciple them. Sometimes it's hard for churchgoers or believers to understand that, that it's possible to disciple somebody before they're a Christian. And if that, does, if that sounds weird to you, then think about your kids or think about kids or grandkids. We disciple them before they're Christians, don't we? And so people can be discipled to Christ. An example in the Bible would be the difference between Peter and Paul. Paul had this moment, this conversion moment, right, where he, he obviously gets converted. He gets knocked off his horse, gets saved. But then you go back and look at Peter's life. When does Peter get converted? We, th we think we know he gets converted. Then Jesus calls him Satan. So we're, like, we're wondering, did he, did he really get converted because Jesus just did call him Satan? So, so we, there's no real place that we can say that G, uh, Peter was converted. S some of your lives were like, some of you it happened instantaneously, some, some of you it happened over time, and some of you it needs to happen today or soon. And so that's the idea that we can't, Jesus was discipling the apostles, the disciples, before they were believers. And that's, that's, that's a way to look at the relationships in our life as well. I'll keep moving here. Uh, consider the process factor. Teach people how to believe in addition to what to believe. 
like an introduction to Holy Spirit-led and inspired spiritual disciplines. And then is evangelism an event or a process? I got a little ahead of myself and we'll talk about Peter and Paul there. And then there's the Holy Spirit factor as we wind down here. Walk in the belief that God is already actively involved in people's lives. The people that you encounter, work, home, neighborhood, wherever, walk in the belief that God is at work in their lives. Even to ask the question, God, how are you working in this person's life? Just ask that, ask that question of God. That's all, all a part of it. Offer to pray for people's needs. Sometimes when you're with them and they share something, they're going through something, you can say, well, you know, I'm going to pray for you for the next tonight or, you know, I'm going to pray for you. Then sometime you'll be with somebody and you might feel prompted to say something like, can I pray for you right now? I've been with some guys uh, talking to them and, and noticed that um, out to eat, restaurant, the waiter, waitress comes up, the server, the server comes up, and uh, they say, um, hey, we're just about to pray over our food. Is there anything we can pray for for you? And I was like, wow, that's kind of awesome. And what they told me as I ta- asked them about it was the, the idea that 95% of the time, the server's really open to share something or thank you, I appreciate that. But it just, it builds this kind of instant bridge. And so it's, it's little things like that, whether you tell them, I, I'm going to pray for you. Or whether you say, let's pray right now. Can I pray for you right now? Those kinds of things, considering the Holy Spirit. Here's uh, 1 Timothy 2, um, 3 and 4. Amazing passage. God, our Savior, who desires all people, the word is anthropos. It, it, doesn't, it usually has the male pronoun, but anthropos means people, anthropology, study of people. Uh, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's that sense that, that God is in this. God wants this too. God's doing things in their life. How can we put our hand to what God is doing in their life? And then it, consider the missional factor. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. We're, we're, what we're inviting is for God to bring his kingdom to us. Your kingdom come and and expand and spread. And what we're really saying is use me, use me, use me. Let your kingdom come and use me to help spread the kingdom of God and the earth. Uh, See evangelism as as inviting people into God's mission. It's not just about populating heaven. That's the fruit. The goal is to invite people in to God's mission. And so as you wind this up, I want to, throw out a name that some of you will know, some of you will be brand new name, George Mueller, a German guy, moved to England, 19th century, to go to school, ended up staying. He went out to Bristol, uh, pastor. He started these orphanages, and he was the founder, and it grew to be this huge thing. Uh, He was an evangelist. Uh, He was a man known for tremendous faith. In the orphanage days, they had nothing, you know, maybe they didn't have breakfast. They didn't have anything for breakfast in the morning. George Mueller would spend all night in prayer, and then somebody would deliver breakfast on the doorstep and knock, the, knock on the door, and it would be there. There's hundreds of stories about how God uh, responded to George Mueller's uh, prayers. And he became known, he had eight guys that go way back in his life that he prayed for for a long time. 
And seven of the eight guys became Christians. And the eighth guy didn't for a long, long time. Here's this quote from Mueller. He said, I've been praying for 63 years and eight months. Was he intentional? Maybe. 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. He is not saved yet, but he will be. How can it be otherwise? I'm praying. I love that. And, and also to say that this Oikos thing, we're in it for the long haul, aren't we? It's not like we're going to see it all happen at once. 63 years and eight months. Did the guy become a Christian? Yes, he did. When did he become a Christian? At George Mueller's funeral. So George Mueller didn't live to see this guy become a believer. But at his funeral, as his casket is being lowered into the grave, this man, this, this eighth friend, he drops to his knees in the dirt and cries out, Oh, Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. Such a beautiful story. I want to ask you to pray a prayer um, and think about it before you pray this. Here's the prayer. God, as much as I'm able to stand, help me to see like you see and feel like you feel. T take courage to pray that. And, and make sure you add that front part, as much as I'm able to stand. Because if we saw, we felt, we'd be disintegrated. There's that. As much as I'm able to stand, Lord, I want to see what you see. I want to feel what you feel. And that will stir something. If you pray that prayer, that will stir something in you that will affect your relationships in some wonderful and beautiful and difficult at times ways.